Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. YJBM is a PubMed Index quarterly journal edited by Yale medical, graduate, and professional students and peer-reviewed by experts in the field of biology and medicine. Each issue of the journal is devoted to a focus topic, and through a few episodes of this podcast, we'll take you through the past, present, and future of the issue's subject matter. Today's episode is the second devoted to our June 2017 issue on infectious disease. I'm your co-host, Erica Gorenberg, a second-year graduate student in the neuroscience program here at Yale. And I am Neil Ravindra, a third-year graduate student in the molecular biophysics and biochemistry department, and your co-host. Okay, we'd also like to welcome our special guest, Dr. Heidi Zapata. Dr. Zapata received her MD and PhD from SUNY Upstate. She then did her residency at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville and her fellowship here at Yale University. Dr. Zapata is now an assistant professor in the Departments of Internal Medicine and Infectious Disease at Yale. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Neil. So um, we kind of came across Dr. Zapata when she responded to the survey we mentioned in our our previous episode on infectious disease um, that we sent to Yale faculty that were studying immunology and epidemiology and a a variety of other fields related to infectious disease. So we'd actually love for our listeners to hear one or two of your answers um, to the to the survey questions directly sure. from you. So I guess the first one we kind of discussed it in our in our first episode. But what um, is your definition of an infection? Okay, so yeah, um, so I'm sure you guys have heard about the recent hype about the microbiome. So our bodies are inhabited not only by a community of bacteria, but fungi and viruses, um, and so. Not all of these organisms cause an infection. So an infection really is something caused by a microbe that causes disease or pathogenesis in the human host. Um, Now, sometimes bacteria that are commensal or friendly can become pathogens and cause infections. So it can become a little complicated, right? And depending on the host. But so yeah. it's not necessarily pathogen specific. It's more like a combination of different factors what causes an infection. Right. So it's not just the pathogen, it's also the host. Mm-hmm. And that's what that's where it gets, complicated. gets complicated. Yeah. And if you missed our, our first episode, we tried to get into a little bit of, of the complications of that in um, our background episode. Um, the other question I wanted to ask was, do you have a favorite historical uh, infection that, that you wanted to? to? Oh, my gosh. If you don't, that's okay. <laughs> well, okay, so I have a list of favorite infections. I have, like, an ID bucket list of things that I'd like to see one day. But if you if you think about it, the whole history of infectious disease is kind of this amazing ride. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever read the book Microbe Hunters. No. Mm. But it kind of goes through, like, you know, Lister, the great ID giants, Lister and Koch, who came up with the Koch postulates, um, just through all the the beginnings, starting with Leeuwenhoek when he started looking under the microscope and he saw microbes. And it's just this amazing story. Um, Then more recently with HIV and the fact that we now have medicines to treat this virus, it's all kind of amazing. 
So, yeah, I can't really pick one. There's too many. That's okay. And they're all <laughs> very cool, and it's, it's just this amazing story that keeps but, going. But you use the ID, you mean infectious disease? Yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. Um, yes. But you have it, so you have a whole list of... I have a list, yeah. But these are things IDs you'd like to see in the clinic. In the clinic, right? In the hospital, yeah. Things that are very rare, but I'd like to see, yeah. And so do you practice as well as uh, I do, do research? Okay. yeah. I see patients, yeah. What are, what are some of your your bucket list? Huh? Maybe they're things we haven't heard of before. <laughs> or approximately how long how long is the is that list? Um, so <laughs> it changes. I haven't laminated it. That's a, that's a friend's <laughs> episode um, comment. But um, well, one thing, for example, something like trypanosomiasis, mm-hmm. um, sleeping sickness. That's my favorite parasite. Um, if you ever have looked at a picture, it has an undulating membrane, and it is an organism that practices antigenic variation, that it can change the surface, the, its surface membrane to respond to the host's immune response. I mean, that is insanely cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that would be one of them. I have lots of other things that I want to see. We can talk about it one day. But, um, <laughs> yeah, very interesting. Cool. Do they follow sort of a theme with Im- immuno kind of relations with the host, like antigenic variation, do you think? Or is that one of the topics that interests you? So definitely. So my research focuses on – so I work um, with Albert Shaw, and we kind of, and he's my mentor, and we focus on studying how the immune system changes as we get older. And one of the – and also in the setting of HIV – So people have hypothesized that HIV infection is kind of an accelerated form of aging, and people develop comorbidities much more early in life and frailty and become frail. So people hypothesize that aging and HIV infection are similar um, in that sense. They both have a a pro-inflammatory environment that, in the end, likely dictates how they respond to infections. Now, in general the host response to infection is a great interest of mine because it's very different in every person. So in the hospital, so we all have bacteria on our skin, but why does it in some people lead to a cellulitis or a skin infection versus a bloodstream infection from the bacteria that then leads to a heart infection or those same skin bacteria then lead to what we call necrotizing fasciitis. It's a common misconception that necrotizing fasciitis is because of a specific bacteria, but it's actually because of the host response. And so understanding why that is would be, is what really interests me. Interesting. So that that plays into that uh, complication between, uh, you know, the the, the host plays a a huge role in, in infection. So can you tell us a little bit more about the specifics of your work um, that you've been doing? Sure. Um, so currently I'm working on what – so the innate immune response and the adaptive innate immune – the adaptive immune response, they're two different parts of the immune system. The innate is kind of what responds initially to um, infection. And that's kind of mediated by pattern recognition receptors. Have you guys heard about toll-like receptors? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have. Okay, so... T- Do you want to introduce it? Maybe, sure. Maybe. So yeah. pattern recognition receptors are 
receptors that recognize essentially patterns and microbes, and there's all these different families. What I'm specifically focusing on right now is a family called C-type lectin receptors and how they function specifically in the aging and the HIV population, and if that's different at all. Are you seeing overlap between uh, th- these receptors in, the, in the, those two populations? I'm seeing similar responses in terms of their function. That's pretty cool. I think so. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so do you want to maybe dig uh, just a, what are the kind of leading hypotheses then, like, about how this is working and w- what does that do for HIV infections? Well, okay, so... Does it confer an advantage, for example, or... Hmm. Okay, so one of the things, right, so we're... One of the... We've achieved treatment treating these patients, and if you are good about taking your medicine every day, you can achieve a non-detectable viral load Mm -hmm. and live to a normal age, right? But given this pro-inflammatory environment that is likely caused by the virus... Um, and this accelerated accelerated aging, which we're still trying to understand. Well, how, you know, how does that lead to these other things that they're dealing with? Does this pro-inflammatory environment cause them to have more comorbid diseases compared to the average person? Does it cause them to have increased frailty um, compared to the normal person? Um, compared to an age match person, rather. Um, I guess those are the big questions now. So how does HIV and the process of aging, how do they fuse, and how does that affect their response to infection, how they're getting older, and their number of comorbid conditions? So do you think that the inflammation response is not, it's related to HIV, but not necessarily... It's not HIV directly causing some of these other effects. It's rather kind of a secondary effect of HIV. Is that, am I getting that right? So, right. So HIV, we know, causes like this immunosuppression, right, that can cause AIDS, right? Mm-hmm. But once you start taking the meds, your CD4 counts start to rise, and you don't have to deal with so much opportunistic infections, right? But even with it being treated, there is still this pro-inflammatory environment that remains. And it's even seen in patients called elite controllers that actually can control the virus on their own. They don't need um, medicines to do that. And it is present. We have lots of evidence that this pro-inflammatory environment exists, as it does in aging. And actually, um, an Italian scientist called Claudio Franceschi has called this inflammaging. so yeah, Clever. so despite our being able to, our ability to treat it, they still have this pro-inflammatory environment, and I think I I do think it does affect other things. So maybe not the risk for opportunistic infections, but things that you might get right. more likely when you get older. Instead, exactly. that's really interesting. Um, do you happen? I don't know if you've even studied this, but do you do you happen to look at how? Um, like HIV changes over age as well, like HIV infection, because then you're you have the combination between the aging normal aging response plus um, HIV pro and pro-inflammatory response. 
That's that, that's exactly right. Um, no, we don't know. We're trying to figure that right. out. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it sounds uh, it sounds like a, a lot of big questions. So, yeah, I agree. Is it is it fairly isolated when we age? Is inflammation really the primary correlate? I guess, or are there a lot of other things going on in the body that complicate? Yeah, there's definitely a lot of other things yeah. going on in the body, but. Um, yeah, inflammation is a major um, driver um, or it's something that we see with aging. Now, whether it's contributing to comorbid development of stuff like diabetes, I think that's likely. And I think there is evidence that's trickling in uh, showing us that. Um, there's even studies out there looking at whether the Mediterranean diet would help. People are looking at centenarians in places like Sardinia to try to figure out why do these people live longer than others? Mm -hmm. That's, wow. You don't think of aging as like an inflammatory response, but that's... Because because we have this conception that they can't fight infections as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But no, they do have this inflammatory environment that, and that may be the reason, is likely the reason why they don't respond to infections as well. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. So do you want to maybe also introduce how you how you study these questions? Sure. Um, so my work basically focuses on human subjects. Um, so we recruit from certain sites at Yale, and uh, we draw blood, basically, and then we isolate their, their white cells, and we use their white cells to then stimulate certain receptors and look at the output with specific so specific things like cytokines and that's done by flow cytometry mm-hmm. which is a basically we label cells with certain antibodies which are specific to certain proteins on the cell antibodies co- that are colored so it's kind of like painting a cell and tr- and then looking at the output when they're stimulated and then looking at those different outputs and comparing them in these different populations and looking to see if there are differences. What I have seen so far is that older adults and HIV-infected adults are much more inflammatory than people who are younger and don't have HIV. So one of the things I think we like to ask on, on this kind of episode is, are there tools that you know you could imagine being developed that would help, or like something that would help you study the things that you study, something that hasn't been developed yet but would make things easier? I mean, obviously, if you could come up with that, you would be uh, rich and, um, <laughs> and famous. And famous. You know, we, we do have limitations with human studies, um, the fact that we can only really draw blood or take some tissues at times um, as compared to a mouse that you can infect with a certain pathogen and then, you know, in the end, dissect um, and sacrifice and then look at what is happening in every organ. I think we're still limited in that sense. However, despite those limitations, I think it's extremely important to keep trying to understand things in humans. I think one of the limitations we have as clinicians is that people come into the hospital and they'll come in with what is considered probably an opportunistic infection, but they're kind of 
we see them as immunocompetent because we don't know, we don't have a very good way of measuring the immune system currently. We can measure stuff like CD4 cells, which can measure a part of T cell function. But our ability to really determine whether someone is immunocompetent versus immunocompromised, I think, is flawed. And I would like to change that. Um, but I think, in, in general, though, it, I think it does need to change for us to better understand how infections really happen and to really understand the host immune response to these infections as well. What else would you need to, to measure in order to tell if a, a host was immunocompromised versus immunocompetent? So, okay, so there's the innate immune system, right? So mm -hmm. it's the cells that kind of see stuff first. So stuff like macrophages and monocytes and neutrophils. And then there's T cells, right? There's CD4 T cells or CD8 T cells, but then there's also NK cells. And not, not, not only that, but we also have resident cells that live in certain parts of our body, such as the mucosa, the mouth, the genitals. We don't have a good understanding of that. A lot of it is based on work done in mice. And mice, don't get me wrong, are great, but they're not humans. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is. There's a lot we don't know. It yeah. would be nice to have a have a scale, I guess, for how competent uh, yeah. if someone's immune system is. I think it's important mm -hmm. information. Um, I think it would help us understand things further, but we're not there yet. Mm -hmm. We yeah. are very limited in that. And so right now we just do our best to treat infections as we see them in the hospital. And that's important too. <laughs> yeah. So just, just going back to your uh, methodology, you... How do you measure inflammation? Uh, so right, so we so flow cytometry basically labels cells with certain colors, and then we can measure certain certain outputs in specific populations of cells. So um, that's how we we measure it. So as opposed to just taking someone's serum or plasma and just measuring a cytokine from there, which is a non-specific thing, right? Because it could come from any cell in the body. It's basically cell-specific and trying to figure out at a specific, trying to look at a specific cell type um, systematically and then looking at specific responses. Very cool, yeah. So do you use the Yale facilities for yeah. flow cytometry? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Actually, I usually use the flow cytometer at George Street. It is nice that we have so many facilities here. <laughs> it's definitely a great place to do research. Yes, I agree. I agree. Um, so I guess kind of thinking a little bit, a bigger picture in infectious disease in general, because that's what we've been talking about um, in this episode and obviously the last episode. Um, what do you think, you know, we've had a lot of these big scares, Ebola and Zika. Um, what do you think the next big question we have to, to answer is? Um, in, in infectious disease? Do you think the things that we're worried about are the things that we should be worried about? Hmm. So I think one of the big questions is that is going to take some time to really figure out is how does the community of organisms that lives with us, how does that affect our immune response and how we respond to infection? I mean... Primarily it's, the microbiome. Right. Like, it's mm -hmm. like, how many? 
I think what's the count we currently have of millions of bacteria, but Oh, I don't I don't know, but it's probably in our introductory episode to the microbiome <laughs> podcast, so you should check that out. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's very high, but how does that affect the way we work? I mean, that's a huge question that we're just starting to figure out. I mean, at this point, we're still just kind of categorizing associations like, oh, this bacteria is associated with this, but we don't really understand how it works. And so I think that's one big question. And then harping back to my other question is how does, we need a, we need a better characterization of how the immune system responds to infection. I think it's still pretty limited. I mean, considering we were talking about on our last episode that uh, they didn't know hand washing was uh, important for a very long time, I think we still have, we clearly still have a long way to go, even though. That's so true. Yeah. Even though we're no longer uh, institutionalizing people for thinking you should wash your hands before delivering babies. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, so do you see like microbiome research as mostly geared towards understanding what's going on, or do you think that there's some potential there for the prevention step to looking into cure and and treatment? I don't understand your question. I guess I'm I'm working, uh, just wondering if you think that we're still at a, the beginning stages of microbiome research, oh, or if we're starting we're to definitely at the beginning jump. stages. Yeah, yeah, we lots lots to go. Um, potential, but I mean, potentially, if we truly understand right this relationship, that's there's great there's great potential to learn a lot. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and understanding how how we interact with uh, yeah, you know, the good and the bad. It's kind of huge, actually. Yeah, it's it's crazy uh, how it interacts with like so many other. Like you think it, it's just the gut, but it's like every system. And, right. And so it's it, our uh, skin. It's our mouth. It's yeah. Yeah, and you know, there the, the research that says it's like affecting behavior as well. So you know, for me as a neuroscientist, it's just it blows my mind. And my mind is blown as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, how how do you think current research is informing our understanding of infectious disease and preventing it and treating it? So we have clearly, we, we have, you know, antibiotics now and we're treating yeah. HIV. Um, but how how are we doing and, and you know, wh- where do we need to, to sure. improve? So, yeah, we, we have, so in terms of bacteria, we have, we have decent antibiotics. One thing we definitely need to improve is start improving the pipeline of antibiotics. I think with the emergence of multidrug resistant organisms, we do sometimes see ourselves limited with what we can use. I think now that I bring it up, M- MDR pathogens are a big thing that is a problem and that's something that worries all of us. Um, the way antibiotics are used, not in our, not only in our country, but throughout the world, um, 
sometimes you can buy antibiotics in certain countries just at any corner store. I mean, that is all contributing to the emergence of these super pathogens that makes us all worry. So that's one thing. Is that uh, something you come across frequently as a clinician? Yeah. There are. There, it's not just, you know, it's something we talk about. No, it, no, it, we see it. Um, we do our best. Um, but there, we definitely lose the battle sometimes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the whole call um, from, for this, from the CDC to, to really get this under, the, under control on a worldwide um, status is really important, I think. Now, let's see, what else did you ask me? I, I forgot. Oh, I, I think you were just going to, it sounded like you were going to, you had another idea of um, how, how our research is informing um, our oh, understanding of prevention. so what else needs to be done? So, yeah, okay, so in terms of viral infections, um, okay, we have drugs that work against HIV, hepatitis. Um, we have one drug that works against influenza. Our drugs in terms of viruses is still pretty limited. Um Whoever, if anyone found the cure to the common cold, right? <laughs> that would be amazing. Yes. Um, there's definitely, in terms of the vi- viruses, we need some work. And then in terms of fungi, we have drugs, but because fungi are also eukaryotic cells, so cells just like us, the way we work, there's a lot of toxicities associated with them. We have, We still have a great deal of difficulty diagnosing these infections, and we often diagnose them too late. And then in the end, the drugs are not as good, and I feel like we often lose the battle against fungi as well, so that's another area that needs to be worked on. Where do you think research is headed uh, focusing on the host response? Not so much antibiotics that focus on the pathogen, but more uh, you know, drugs to help our immune systems, for example. Where do yeah. you think that's headed? I think I think we have it with certain things. So with something like rheumatoid arthritis, we have anti-TNF blockers that have helped us treat the disease. I think, like I said, I think our understanding of the immune response is still, we still have ways to go. Um, I think... I think we need to keep working on understanding how they interact, right? The relationship as opposed to just focusing on one or the other. So I it's think, a more complicated I think issue, it's important sure. to just keep trying to understand the host and the pathogen. Yeah. yeah it's always more complicated, isn't <laughs> it? You always want to simplify it. Um, so I... I I guess I, I mentioned a little earlier there have been a lot of these disease scares. Yes, Ebola, Zika. Yeah, right. and you know I remember sitting in in college and you know that when the Ebola th- and every time I walked into the dining hall it was Ebola coverage twenty four seven Ebola coverage, um, and you know say, similar with Zika. Do you think that these are things these are the actually the infections that we need to be worried about or are there other or not necessarily the infections, but are there other things that, you know, we need to be more concerned about? Okay, so Ebola definitely was scary when it was happening. I will say that it was happening before the whole, like, huge media blow up. (laughs) Just people weren't reporting about it. Um, 
And we're still dealing with Ebola and its aftermath. Even people who have survived the infection are suffering from things like blindness. Um, so I think that is still a scary thing. Um, Zika, I think we're still trying to understand how it works, why it produces these maternal fetal defects. I mean, that's a huge thing, right? Mm -hmm. But not, not only these infections, but like I said, the emergence of these multidrug resistant organisms, very common organisms that we deal with on a daily basis, like Staph aureus and Pseudomonas, these are common you know, infections in the hospital that will probably kill more people than the other ones. Um, influenza every year kills a bunch of people. Our, our vaccines need to be worked on. It's not just Zika and Ebola. Yeah, of course. I, that's Although they just they get a lot more media coverage than oh, anything because they're else. new and scary. Yeah. Uh, you know, if the flu doesn't seem that scary because you know everybody's known someone who had the flu. Right, but it kills right. a lot but of people do, every I, year. That doesn't mean it's not dangerous. Yeah. yeah. So after Zika, for example, it's it's the summertime again. So mosquitoes mm -hmm. are yeah. important. You know, do you have a good sense of, you know, what we got right the first time and what we got wrong so we can... In terms of what? In terms of how we dealt with the, for the public's sake, how we dealt with disseminating information about what to do and how to control spread and... I mean, I thought they did a good job. Um, the CDC did a good job um, with disseminating information. I mean, if you look if you go to any airport and are waiting for security, you see information about mosquito bites and prevention. I mean, I mean that's one of the major things you just have to worry about with these infections, and that's another area, right? So stuff like dengue, which is a much bigger problem, mm -hmm. right? We don't really have a treatment for it. Right. Um, so it's not just Zika or mm -hmm. Ebola. It's also dengue and chikungunya. Right. Just things that we don't necessarily hear about here in the U.S. Right. because they're not affecting uh, us exactly. directly. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. So, what with HIV? How do you? What do you see as what was an effective strategy to kind of disseminate information about the virus and what what still needs to be done? I mean, in the '80s, we the U. It was a again a media blow up with HIV, so there was a lot of coverage about how to prevent it, but. It was also stigmatized. So. Yeah, of course, yeah. Well, HIV was more complicated, right? So in mm. the beginning, we didn't really understand how it was spread or how it was even transmitted. Actually, I don't know if you're going to talk to Dr. Friedland. He was one of the people, one of the physicians in our department. He was actually, he actually did the study that showed that it was not transmitted by sharing a glass or shaking someone's hand or living with them in the same house. So, yeah, there was a ton of stigma. Mm -hmm. I actually think the way the whole thing was kind of a mess in the beginning, right? Right, right. Um, so we didn't know much about it. There was a huge amount of stigma. with Travel bans and... Uh, being gay, being just, Haitian. Yeah. And it lasted for too long. Really. It, yeah. And then, I mean, uh, I'm sure you can read about the protests that happened um, because the drugs weren't getting out there fast enough. I mean, there were there were huge demonstrations, if you recall. So I don't know if we did a great job with that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. 
and what what about you know going forward now what what's still left is re- remaining to be with HIV yeah I think stigma is still a big issue yeah definitely mm-hmm. yeah I you know there's still we still see people who are newly diagnosed and don't want to talk about it with their family or friends um It's, it's just huge. The stigma is still huge, and it really shouldn't be there. It's just a, it's another virus. Just because uh, the way it's spread doesn't mean it's uh, any any less. I think we know, need to work th- on that as culturally, culturally as a yeah. whole. Yeah, yeah, it's too much for for one research lab, I suppose. Yeah, <laughs> it's too too much for even just one university. <laughs> we all need to work on that. Working on stomping out the stigma. Um. So kind of along the lines of like the public and and things like that, what do you think is the biggest or the most risky um, public misconception or um, just thought about infectious disease or the prevention of disease or any of those? Hmm. Well, vaccines are an issue, right? Yes, (laughs) absolutely. Um, The misconception that it can cause harm um, and the fact that a lot of parents are now now not vaccinating their kids. I think that's a big problem. I think that's a misconception mm-hmm. that vaccines cause harm. It's, actually, they've kind of revolutionized our healthcare system and the things that we now have as issues as opposed to what we had as issues back then. So I think that's a, a misconception that we need to work on. I'd say that's the major one. Um, maybe also the maybe perhaps misconception that when you go to your primary care doctor, you need antibiotics for a cold. I yes. think that trying to make people understand that most cold, most upper respiratory infections are caused by viruses, and you do not need antibiotics. And if, in fact. Distributing antibiotics to people who don't really need them is contributing to multidrug resistance and the emergence of these terrible pathogens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's common for people to expect a treatment mm-hmm. as soon as they're sick yep. um, instead of getting rest and yes. eating chicken noodle soup or something. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I guess your, your body is very good at dealing with infections. <laughs> we just don't like dealing with our bodies when they're dealing with it. I think that's yes. the uh, <laughs> yes, absolutely. So going along, so what today? What would you say are some of the biggest risks to public health? I mean, beyond these misconceptions, they obviously play into it. But are there other kind of big risks out there? So stuff that's emerging. Or? Well, I guess multi-drug resistance. We touched we touched upon, which is uh, a big risk to public health. But, uh, you know, are there any other sort of things you could imagine? So, I mean... Open question, by the way. Sure. No, it's okay. So, okay, risks to public health. So, you know, we don't exactly have the HIV epidemic under control. Um, There are still people who are not taking meds and who are out there having unprotected sex. And in addition to that, other STDs, syphilis is on the rise. 
other STDs like chlamydia and gonorrhea, we are now starting to see resistance in some mm. of these um, bugs. So that, I mean, that's one thing that I think people need to keep in mind. Practice safe sex. Um, get tested. Frequently. Yes, okay. frequently. Yeah, is there is there anything that if you, you know, you're talking to the public right now, if you could tell them anything about infectious diseases, disease as a whole or your research or research yeah. about infectious disease, what would you tell our listeners and the public in general? Well, I would say that as an infectious disease doctor, um, given what I see in the clinic, I think research really does need to continue. I don't think we, I think there's lots of questions that need to be answered. And for that reason, we need to keep funding our scientists and our clinicians that are trying to answer these hard questions. And not just for Zika, for... for right, not <laughs> just for Zika, for, for all infectious diseases. I mean, most people don't really think about it. And I've heard people say that, that we're wasting money on research, but that is so the opposite. Mm -hmm. We've come so far, and I think we can go much further. We just need to keep funding our scientists. It's interesting because peop I think people have a problem with like basic, that people tend to have a problem with more basic research, but then you talk about, you know, in the HIV epidemic, learning that it's not transmitted by sharing a drink. Like that is basic research, but it it is, it, it you know, changed the progression of the yeah. rest of research and the, our yeah. understanding of a disease. So, I think we just need to keep moving forward and not put a cap on the National Institute of Health and just keep, just know that we still have so much to do and that we can't just stop where we are. Right. It seems like there are so many interesting questions. Important and questions. And always really important. Yeah, exactly. Things that yeah. we, we still need answers to. Okay. Well, um, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Zapata. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. Join us in October and November for two episodes on comparative medicine, the focus topic for our September 2017 issue. Thank you to the Yale School of Medicine for being at home for YJBM and the podcast. Thank you to Philip Kearney and the rest of the Yale Broadcast Center for help with recording, editing, and publishing our podcast. Thank you to our editors-in-chief, Tomoaki Sasaki, Yasmin Zakanyaz, and Helen Balenson, and the rest of the YJBM staff. We were produced and written by Helen Balenson, Erica Gorenberg, Ali Kuhlman, and Neil Ravindra. For more information on YJBM and our podcast, please visit medicine.yale.edu slash YJBM. Be sure to check out our journal by searching Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine at pubmed.com. If you would like to contact us, please email us at yjbm at yale.edu. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe to us on iTunes and rate us. We'd love your feedback and questions, so feel free to tell us your thoughts by leaving comments. You can also listen to us and share our podcast by searching Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine on SoundCloud. See you next month for the next installment of the YJBM podcast.